As we've been working our way through the books of First and Second Samuel, we've seen that at the heart of these books is a call for God's people to give their allegiance and their hopes and their trust to God's anointed king. We've seen that, that although David was the man chosen by God, he falls far, far short of the king that God's people ultimately need. And yet we've also seen that God has given us the promise of a forever king that would come, and that is Jesus. And that's why, as we've been going through this, these books, we've taken what we're understanding about David as God's anointed one and seen how does this help us apply and understand our relationship to Jesus, the anointed one. The true, the perfect, the forever king that God has anointed and given for us his people. What we've seen is that there is the constant threat and struggle of rebellion and rejection of this anointed one. Where we left off last week, uh, David's son Absalom had rebelled in seeking to take the throne from him, for himself. That rebellion was put down. And David is on his way back to Jerusalem, but what we're going to find out is that rejection still abounds among those who would call themselves the people of God. As we look at their rejection and their struggles to follow God and His anointed, may it help us understand the struggles in our own hearts and how do we address our own temptations and our own struggles to reject and turn from our God and Jesus, our King. So if you would, look with me. We're in chapter 20 of the book of Second Samuel. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 272. We are going to look at the whole chapter together, picking up in verse 1. Remember where we left off last time? David is on his way back, and the men of Israel and Judah have come, uh, although arguing, uh, to seek to bring him back to Jerusalem. So let's pick up there in verse 1. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, And the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. 
So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him uh, Joab's men and the Chetherites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in, at Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab... And whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into a field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth Maacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. And they cast up a mound against the city, and it, and it stood against the rampart. And they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of Yahweh? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was the secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you have given us uh, your word. We thank you that you continue to reveal yourself 
and accomplish your great purposes and exercise your power through your word. We pray that you would speak to your people this morning and we pray and ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what you have for your church today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So kids, if you're following along, if you want to listen for a few words this morning, uh, there's three phrases you can, uh, you can listen for. One is outright rejection. Outright rejection. One is blind rejection. Blind rejection. And the other is hypocritical. That might be a big word. Hypocritical rejection. So outright, blind, and hypocritical rejection. So first, we'll look and see the outright rejection that we encounter in this passage. Although, really, it's not just in this passage that we, we find it. I oh. went to college with some, some guys at NC State who eventually we, we all were on staff with a campus ministry together. Our role was to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus and sharing and telling people about their need for Him and, and, and inviting and calling them to, to follow Christ, turning from their sin and, and embracing Him. In fact, these two guys traveled around and trained students at college campuses all around the Southeast on what, what it looked like and how to share your faith and pursue the lost in Christ. Eventually, these guys left that campus ministry and moved out to California to pursue uh, an internet career. And at first, kind of just secretly, or not publicized at least, they stopped following Christ. They rejected Him. Uh, They had lots of reasons why they did it. Some had to do with uh, questioning the reliability of the Scriptures. Some things had to do with how they saw uh, the, uh, those who would call themselves followers of Christ uh, not living in a way that was consistent with His character. Uh, they saw a scandal within the church and the way that the church sometimes wrongly uh, interacted with the world around them. Uh, and they said, if I don't have to believe this stuff, why would I? Well, what became at first just quiet rejection soon became outright and public rejection as they later would use their, uh, their internet platform to communicate and share their rejection of Jesus to many others. And these guys aren't small fries in YouTube. They're the top, one of the top five earners of YouTube, according to Forbes. It's not just them. Christian singers, at least former, professing, formerly professing Christian singers, who would sing and proclaim about Jesus as King and the need to follow Him, have abandoned Christ. In fact, one such singer is releasing an album on Good Friday that is entitled Jesus Hypothesis. 
And in it, he chronicles his rejection and sings songs where once he used his voice and his music to invite and call people to follow and give their allegiance to Jesus. Now he is singing songs that are calling people to question and reject what the scriptures proclaim. What do we do with this type of rejection, this outright rejection of Jesus? Where is the blame to be found? What is the cause? Is it God's people and their unfaithfulness? Is it the sin of the the leaders of the church? Well, notice where the Scriptures point us this morning. We encounter first someone who also outright rejects God's anointed one. Here, in some ways, we could call what Sheba is doing deconstruction before there was even such a thing on the lips of people's mouths to give a term to it. First, Sheba would have been one who would have professed allegiance to Jesus. He was a member of the people of Israel. One who with Judah and Israel had reaffirmed their commitment. We are followers of God's anointed one, David, whom God has set on the throne. But notice what happens here. It says in verse 20, He blew his trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Remember, we've seen this. To be in someone is to be a member of the people that that person represents. And so for Sheba to come and say, we no longer, I no longer want to be in David. He is saying, I'm rejecting him as being my representative. I am rejecting him as being my king. But it doesn't just stop there. Notice, you can even see the way that it's put out there in your uh, in your Bible. It's set aside and and formatted in a way that's not just regular narrative. It's almost like he's composing a song. Singing of his rebellion and his rejection. And inviting and calling others to join him in rejecting Jesus as the king. And in fact, that is, I mean, David is the king. And that's what happens. Look in verse 2. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. They withdrew. They followed him in his rejection. They listened to him. And they abandoned David as the king. Notice the contrast we see here. That the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. There's a contrast here between those who outrightly reject God's king and his anointed one and those who follow God through his king steadfastly. Where's the blame to lie? Well, we could look and say, you know what? Sheba had great reason to reject David. I mean, look at the people. Look at those who would 
profess and say that they're followers of God and His Anointed One. What a mess they are. Remember, that's where we left off at the end of chapter 19. Remember what we saw? 41 and following? The men of Israel and the men of Judah are arguing and bickering about who has more status and who's closer to to, to David the king. They're boasting about themselves. They're speaking in a way that it tells us the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. They're using an unkind tongue. They're saying and professing with their words, but the way that they're interacting with one another and with the outside community seems at odds. We could say, you know what? The people are to blame. But also we could say, well, look at the king. He's a mess. What have we seen over these past several chapters? The reason David and the people are in this mess is because of the sin of the king. David has struggled as a leader to follow the Lord and to point his people to the Lord, and they're in this because of his own rejection of God, which we'll touch on in just a little bit. But, but notice, the Scriptures say Although there is issues within the people and within the king, where the real problem lies is not external. It's internal. It's in Sheba himself. Notice how he's referred in verse 1. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba. This isn't saying that he has no value. This is a moral category. It's talking about something that's in Sheba's heart. He's wicked. He's lawless. The Scriptures would use those terms in other places. The Scriptures say, let's let's actually look deeper at the root of what is going on. The root of it is in Sheba's rebellion. Now, that isn't to take away from the problems among the people of Israel. That isn't to take away from David's sin. The Scriptures have not hidden that. It is apparent and clear that the author of of 1 and 2 Samuel has not been afraid to point out the shortcomings of God's people and His anointed one here. Even David at at his best falls far short of God's ideal. We can even look at what we looked at last week. Josh... Childers and I were talking about this after the service, where we see David offering uh, uh, mercy and grace and compassion to people. We kind of wonder, is this a full reflection of God's character here? Or is David just being politically uh, savvy and trying to, to, to save himself in the midst of this? Questions are there. But notice here, where the Scriptures call us to look at why one would at one point profess faith and allegiance in God and His Anointed One and why they would reject Him. Scriptures say, don't look external. Look at your heart. Look at your own rebellion and your rejection. This isn't to minimize the pain and the suffering the struggles that people have experienced. 
at the hands of folks in the church and leadership in the church. Church history, past, present, and future will be marked by the unfaithfulness of God's people. We are going to hurt each other. We are going to fail to represent our God well in the world. In fact, that's why God calls us and Jesus commanded us to pray. Hallowed be your name. May God's name be demonstrated and shown holy in the world through us in the way that we live. But we fall short of doing that. But look here what we see. Here, in these, these two books, we have an unfaithful king, yet what the Scriptures are pointing us to is that even in the midst of David's unfaithfulness, God's people are still to give their allegiance to God through following his king, despite his sins, despite his failures. If that is true, for sinful King David, how much more so must it be true for us now? The one who rules on the throne does not sin. The one who rules on the throne has never failed his people. The one who rules on the throne now, King Jesus, is the perfect one. If we owed, as God's people, allegiance to David... How much more so now to King Jesus? Therefore, as we look and reflect and see the sin and error in the church, and it has been horrendous at times, what we must reflect on and what the Scriptures call us to here is if you are struggling and thinking about rejecting and walking away from Christ, the Scriptures would warn you from focusing all of the blame on the people of God or the leaders of God's people. Where the Scriptures first call you to look and examine is your own heart. The source of your rejection is rooted not in what they are doing, but it's rooted in you. And therefore, all of us need to be careful and cautious. All of us need to examine our own hearts and make sure that we are not those who are tempted and struggling to reject Jesus. As we look at the failures in the church, as we look at the sin that God's people have, have done, may we, like Jesus called us to, is the first look at the log in our own eye. Not, let's definitely discuss and talk about the sin of the church and deal with it. The Scriptures aren't afraid to do that. But as you consider rejecting Christ, look at your own heart. Why would you want to reject and flee from the One who perfectly shepherds, who has given His life to redeem and save His people. The blame lies not in Him. But the Scriptures would say, we must return, we must turn from our rebellion, from our outright rejection of Christ. My friends may have noticed some true things 
of the way that the people of God have lived. But they failed to recognize and acknowledge that the real reason is that they just did not want Jesus to be their king. And the sins of others are an excuse to pursue living their life the way they wanted to. If you're struggling with those questions this morning, is that you? Are the Scriptures peeling back the layers of your heart to expose the real issue? We see outright rejection. But like I said, the Scriptures aren't afraid to point out the sin of David. And here, we can see that as we notice what I would call in this passage, blind rejection. David himself has struggled to follow and give his full allegiance to his God. Remember, David isn't the ultimate king in Israel. It is God's throne. And David is ruling as God's representative over his people. The ultimate king of God's people is God himself. And David is to be the chief submitter to God as king. But notice, we've failed to see that. In fact, this passage brings up the sin of David, some explicitly, some implicitly. Notice in verse 3, David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. This reminds us of the consequence that Nathan proclaimed would happen to David due to his rebellion and his rejection and his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. This is why this is going on. It's drawing our attention to remembering the context of David and his sin. But notice, David is blind still to his own sin. Even seeing what he does here, the way that he treats these, these women, this, the, the telling of it here shows that David isn't doing this well. He took these ten concubines, it tells him. It says he provided for them, but did not go into them, which was a good thing. But notice, it says they were shut up until the day of their death. Living as his been widowhood, he basically imprisoned them. They lived a life of isolation. David doesn't, has never really seemed concerned or caring for these women. He's a serial adulterer who has not just these ten concubines, but multiple wives. And yet David seems to be blind to the way that he has devalued and made a mess of God's intentions and purposes in marriage and the way that he is objectified and used women. And here, David fails again to address it. And this has been true throughout his whole life. He's blind to this. There are ways that we see David thriving in his faithfulness to the Lord, but there are big gaping holes in his sight that David is unaware of and blind to his rejection of God's purposes and God as his king. It's not just in his relationship with women, but it's also in his failure to rule his people well. Notice the end of the, the chapter in verse 23. 
this summary of, uh, of the administrative role offices in his kingdom. We saw something like this before. When God brought an end to the, the rebellion of the, the nations around them, in, in chapter 8, there was also this summary. But there's a notable difference. Listen to how it, it begins in chapter 8. In verse 15. Similar context. Enemies have been defeated. And it summarizes the administrative setup of David's kingdom. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and equity to all his people. That's missing. David here is failing to rule his people with justice and equity. He's blind to it. How do we see it? We see it actually with the first man that's mentioned there. And back over in chapter 20. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Joab. A murderer. Multiple times a murderer. He murdered Abner in cold blood. He participated in the the death of Uriah. He killed Absalom when he wasn't supposed to at that time. It wasn't his role to enact that justice. And here again, David has said that Amasa was going to be the leader over his people. David demoted Joab. But David has failed at all times to do anything to Joab other than that demotion. When has he ever challenged Joab's wickedness and the way that he rules in his kingdom? David isn't just passive in the way that he he leads his children and failing to discipline them whether it be Amnon or Absalom or whoever. But here we also see it. We may specifically see it with Joab, who after all of this is where? Back in his place of leadership over the armies of Israel. David is blind to these things. What is going on? Can't you see it, David? Can't you see that you're supposed to rule with justice and equity and Absalom is the opposite of that? David is continuing to live, rejecting God's purposes and intentions for him, and it seems that he's blind to it. But how easy is it? How easy is it for us to clearly see the blind spots in other people's lives? How easy is it for you and me to see how foolish David is living and exactly the ways that he's missing it and how he's failing to live and where he's rejecting God as his king. But we can miss it in our own lives. We miss and fail to see our own blindness. As we read this passage... It points us actually in contrast to not be like David. The the one who rules over us now, who is our king, he's not blind to sin. Definitely not his own. What is there to be blind to? He was sinless. He was the perfect one. Jesus Christ, the righteous, always ruled with justice and always will rule with justice and equity. We never need to question or doubt Him. And in fact, He's not blind to your sin or mine either. 
He knows it all. He even knows what you don't know about yourself. There's a faithful minister of uh, God's Word, part of the PCA early on, who used, who is fond of saying this. You are more sinful than you can imagine. But you are more loved than you would believe. Do you realize and recognize the depth of our sin, the depth of our blindness, all that we're missing? But know this, how do we deal with it? In the confidence of who Jesus is. If our King, the perfect one, died for us when we were still sinners, then we not, need not fear diving deep into our own hearts, asking our brothers and sisters, will you please help me see where I am falling short? Will, will you help me see my sin? Why would we ask that question? Why would we pray that prayer unless we had confidence that there's nothing that we will find in our hearts and in our lives that King Jesus will not pronounce and say, I already knew that. I'm glad you're seeing it now. And it is forgiven. Because I canceled it when I nailed it to the cross. As God's people, why would we reject this king? We must pursue and see where we are blind to our rejection and our rebellion of King Jesus. So we've seen here outright rejection, blind rejection. Lastly, we can see hypocritical rejection. For this, we can look at Joab. Joab, one who on the outside professed and seemed to exercise great loyalty to David, always ready to kill him and his brothers, anybody who would who would dare even speak a, a cross word about David. Joab, one who, who seemed to follow and give his allegiance and ready to give his life or do whatever David would ask him to do, sinful or not. But notice what has happened to Joab here. Look in verse, back over in chapter 19 and verse 13. Remember, David rejected Joab. It's the, one of the only bold things David ever did with respect to Joab. He said to Amasa in verse 13, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God, do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. What was David's desire? What was David's intention and in his command? That Joab is no longer the ruler. And in fact, Amasa would delay and mess up. But in verse 4, who is it that David puts over his armies at that point? It's not Joab. It's Abishai, his brother. Yet what does Joab do? Joab professes with his words and his actions, I am for David, but he rejects him. He rejects David's commands. He goes and he murders Amasa and assumes the role of leader over the army again. He says one thing with his mouth 
and does something else with his actions. Joab professes allegiance to the king, but he lives in a hypocritical way. In fact, you even see other people commenting on Joab's allegiance to David. After he killed Amasa and he's laying there in the ground, notice what the, the, one of the men of Joab tells us in verse 11. He took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. To follow Joab is to follow David, they're saying. But the people stop. Did you notice that? They hear what he's saying, and they're supposed to be pursuing Sheba, but they stop. Where do they stop? At Amasa, wallowing in his own blood in the road. Because they can't, they're hearing this proclaim that Joab is for David, but what do they see before him? Evidence of Joab's rebellion. That Joab has disobeyed and rejected David. So what do they do? In order to, to get the people to continue to follow and believe that Joab is for David, do you see what it says? He carried Amasa out of the highway in the field and threw a garment over him. They had to cover it up. They had to hide it. They had to conceal it. Because it's only when they conceal Joab's rebellion that then the people will begin to follow and pursue him. So that it looks like on the outside that Joab is actually for and given his allegiance to David. Joab says one thing, but he does another. You even catch him in an outright lie with this woman uh, at uh, Abel. Notice what she, as she says to uh, uh to him there in verse 19. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of Yahweh? And Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. Really? All Joab has ever done in his life is swallow up and destroy. He may say with his words, I am a follower of the king, but his actions so show something else. He's a hypocrite. We are seeing textbook evidence of hypocritical rejection of God's anointed one. This goes on today, sadly. Do you see it in your own heart? I see it in mine. Places where I will, up here before you, profess and call to you to follow and walk with Jesus. But in my own life, I see myself struggling and failing in those very same things. Where I will, can discipline my children for doing something that I know just last week I did myself. We say and we speak that we are followers of Christ, but is that evident to the outward world? Wesley told me about a scandal here in Elizabeth City from several years ago of a man who was known as being a believer within the farming community. But he scammed a bunch of people out of their... Uh, their investments and their money. And it still has had a reverberating effect of people's questions about God and the church because of that man's hypocrisy. 
You see, we're not afraid to address and call out sin that's sin. David's sin, the sin and errors of his people, we need to address it. We need to deal with our own hypocrisy and see where are we failing to follow and honor Jesus as our King? Because we must remember, what has our King done for us? Our King has pursued us. Our King has lived perfectly for us. Our King has died in our place. Our King is returning to save and redeem us. Why would we want to demonstrate and show anything to our brothers and sisters in Christ or to the watching world that would cause people to question the goodness, the faithfulness, the value or worth of following Jesus as our King? Our hypocrisy drags the name and reputation of Christ in the mud. May that not be us as God's people. May we as His redeemed ones, in the same way that we look at our blindness, not be afraid to expose our own hypocrisy and repent and flee right now to King Jesus. Because we know that as we come to Him, we will find grace and mercy and forgiveness in our time of need. Why would we reject a king like this? The one who loved us and gave himself up for us. May we turn from our outright rejection. May we expose and root out our blind rejection. And may we ever be ready to deal with our hypocritical rejection that the name and glory of Christ might go forth. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank You for Your faithfulness to us and unfaithful people. We thank You for the good news of the Gospel that You died to save and redeem sinners. Turn our hearts yet again to You. May we rest and hope in what You have done for us. May we never reject You, but constantly flee to the cross and find mercy and grace from our gracious and forgiving Savior and King. Amen.